Acts chapter 14. If you have a white or a blue Bible that we handed you, like the one I have up here, it is page 538. All right. Uh, quick announcement. If you have a student, and by that I mean 6th through 12th grade, so high school, junior high-ish age, uh, we have a youth group that's been happening on Tuesday night. It's been awesome. And... Uh, Jake and I, so the guy who just led worship, have been talking about the idea for a while of investing in those kids who have musical desires, talents, abilities. So uh, this week, Tuesday is the first one, 6 o'clock to 7 o'clock at the church office. So if you got a kid and you're like, I think they might want to do this, or even if they're on the very low end and just want to learn, maybe they have a guitar at home, or maybe they don't have a guitar at home, we got a couple extras. So uh, talk to myself, Jake, or Austin, who is teaching our youth group. Um, yeah, that's happening this week. Woo, you can clap for that. That's fine. But don't look at them. The students are all just over here, and they told me they don't like it when you look at them. So we're not. It's just, you, just us old people over here. That's all that's happening. Okay, back to Acts chapter 14. Here we go. Uh, to catch us all up to speed on kind of what's happening here as we've gone through the book of Acts, we've watched kind of the epicenter of uh, Christianity shift from Jerusalem, which is where Jesus obviously lived and died and rose from the dead uh, and where his followers began. And then it's kind of shifted north um, to a place called Antioch, which would be in modern day Turkey. Actually, I got a map here. We'll look at it later as well. But can I throw it up right now? Yeah, it's squished, but it gives you the idea, right? Here's the Mediterranean Sea. Down here is Jerusalem, if you can't see it. And then Antioch is up there. So kind of this was the center of Christian activity for a long time. And then we've watched as it kind of shifted to Antioch, uh, became the center of what was going on kind of in the church with the Jesus followers. It's about 300 miles north up the Mediterranean coast uh, from Jerusalem. And so... Uh, the church is like exploding at this point in time. You can take that down. We'll look at it again later. Um, or don't. Whatever you want. You guys are doing great. So this exploding church in Antioch is kind of like building and growing. And from this church, this kind of epicenter of Christian activity, uh, we saw in Acts chapter 13, there was three guys that got sent out. Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark. And so these three guys, they were praying and fasting as church leaders with some other church leaders in the church at Antioch. And it felt like God was like, hey, we got to go. It says the Holy Spirit set them apart. So they spent some time in prayer and fasting. And then they went straight from where they were down to the, actually, let's throw it back up there. Look at me, like causing you guys to be on your toes. So they went from there. Good job, Caesar. They went from Antioch, which is a bit off the coast, straight to the coast. And we're following the red line uh, from your right to left. And then they went straight across to the island of Cyprus. Okay, and we read through this journey. This is what's called Paul's first missionary journey. He's going to take uh, three, actually four, but whatever, you don't care, uh, journeys in his lifetime. This was the very first one. So they went straight to the Mediterranean, got on a boat, went straight across to this island called Cyprus, landed at the closest city there, worked their way all the way through that island, got to the other end before the first person we're told of, at least in the account, got saved, 
right, responded to the gospel. And at that point, actually only one guy ended up responding to the gospel. They got on a boat, went north, and ended up in Turkey, well, modern-day Turkey, and you can kind of see the regions and what they're called, like they used to call that Asia and Galatia, and some of these you could rec recognize from your Bible. They went up to a place called Perga, right? And then they ended up, up here is another city called Antioch, right? So we're in Antioch last week, not the same Antioch they came from. They're far apart, but that's why I put the map up there, because, you know, you see the same name, and you're like, wait, is this the same place? And like, no, two places have the same name. It's not that weird. It's a little weird, not that weird, right? I looked it up this week. Washington is the most common name in the United States of America. There's like 88 places named Washington. There's cities named Washington. There's states named Washington. And number three on the list of most common names, Jared. Yeah, you didn't know that, did you? I made that up. That's not true. Jared's not the most common name. So they left Antioch, went to the next town over, which is Iconium. If you're following the map, I know it's a little blurry, but uh, when you steal images from the internet, that's what happens. And so we go to Iconium, and that's where we pick it up in chapter 14, verse 1. Now, actually, take a step back. When we were in Antioch, we saw the first sermon that Paul ever preached. And while he was preaching this sermon, we recognized, as we read through that sermon, he was proclaiming the goodness of God. He didn't tell them any rules they had to follow. And there's three very common things that happen at the end of it. It's going to happen throughout the ministry of Paul. Lots of people believed, lots of people disagreed, and the people who disagreed were very angry, right? There was huge division, and that's going to be a common theme. We're actually going to see it today in chapter 14, verse 1. So here we go, 14, verse 1. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained there for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. So Paul and Barnabas, like they did in Antioch, went to the synagogue and preached. And like happened in Antioch, many believed. And also like happened in Antioch, many opposed them. And it says they stayed there for a long time. Now, Acts 13 is going to be a reference point for us. So if you aren't familiar with that study, I gave you the quick Cliff's Notes version, Paul's first sermon, he preached the goodness of God to a Jewish audience, so he used the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, to preach to the goodness of God. But that's going to be kind of a template, because what's going to happen here is Luke, who's the guy who's writing this book, is not going to take the time to rehash every single sermon Paul gives. So my guess is that means that his message was very much the same every place he went. I don't think when he was in Antioch, he's like, God's good, respond to his goodness. And when he got to Iconium, he's like, follow the rules or God will send you to hell. Like that, that would be quite a, a shift from the message of his, his purpose, like his mission. And so Luke doesn't give us the same exact sermon. I bet that why he gave us the entire sermon in Acts 13 and doesn't give us the entire sermon in Acts 14, 15, 16, and all these places that he goes is because the message is very similar. The goodness of God, proclaim to people, respond to the goodness of God. God magnifying, God exalting, the foundation is understanding and the responding to God's goodness as revealed in the word of God. So here in Iconium, 
there's something a little bit different. In addition to that message that Paul preaches in the synagogue, we have what we're told is God adding signs and wonders. Do you see that in verse 3? The Lord added signs and wonders. Who here doesn't read that and say, that would be cool? Doesn't everybody think that when you read through the Bible? You're like, I kind of want some signs and Like, give me some of that, right? Signs and wonders, like, those are good deals. Like, why can't we have a little bit of those? Why can't we have some miracles? Why can't we have some cool stuff happening that we can't explain? Everybody thinks that, right? And I don't know about you, but like, I read through that and I'm like, hey, I want some blind people to see. I want some people to get healed. I want some whatever miracles, unexplainable things to happen. But even here in Acts chapter 14, it says the miracles are attended to accomplish not just people going, hey, cool, we had a miracle. But look at what it says in verse 3. The miracles were the purpose of bearing witness to the word of his grace. So miracles are not an end in themselves. Signs and wonders are not an end in themselves. Signs and wonders are intended to drive us to and, and, and point us to the word of God, and more specifically, the goodness of God as revealed in the scriptures. Now, that's super important because miracles, if you just think they're the point of Christianity, you could get super off. You could get weird. You get way out there. Because think about how this would happen. If my experience of God was based on a miracle, right? Maybe you came to church and you heard a sermon and, and God put it on your heart that like there was some crazy thing that he was going to work out and he did a miracle. And that's like what you think the Christian life is now. Signs and wonders and miracles and crazy things that we can't, can't understand. The next time I want to have a relationship with God, I have to have another experience. And we're all humans, right? So if we have to follow up one experience with another experience, the second experience has to be better than the last one, right? That's how we all work. And so what happens is, right, I had a cool thing happen. Now I got to have a cooler thing happen. And it's got to be bigger and it's got to be crazier. It's got to be further. It's got to be deeper. It's got to be more at stake. And then if I want to have another experience with God, then the third one's got to be bigger than the first two. And you see how quickly we get off, right? Now the fourth one's got to be bigger than the first three. And the fifth one's got to be bigger than the first four. And like, we just keep going and keep going. And now our expectation is not driving us to the word of God. It's driving us to experiences. And our experiences have to grow because that's human nature. And pretty soon we end up hoping feathers fall from heaven and we got rattlesnakes in our service. And like, we're ordaining cats or something, right? Because we've got so far down this road, we don't know where we are anymore. But if you understand what this is actually teaching, that the miracles were intended to drive us to the word of God, the word of God is self-correcting, right? If you are focused on the word of God, it corrects itself, right? If you get too far into the word of God, which is impossible, but let's say you got so focused on the word of God, you neglected the spirit. You know what the word of God is going to tell you to do? Be sensitive to the spirit. Maybe you got so into the word of God that you're like, oh man, I forgot reaching out to community. Well, the word of God tells you to reach out to the community. So in that way, focusing on the word of God is self-correcting. If you allow it to condition and direct your heart, right? It'll bring you back to those spiritual experiences. It'll bring you back to those worship moments. And I say that because so many times 
Christians put themselves in these lanes of what we're going to focus on, right? And we got this, this segment of Christianity and they're focused on the worship experience, right? And they write great worship music and it's not self-correcting. And you get way down this like cool song road and all of a sudden the songs aren't even about Jesus anymore. Or you get the miracles focus, right? And like we talked about earlier, it's got to be bigger and better. And, and you get so far down this road, it's not self-correcting, right? Or you get the theology thing. And we got so like into figuring out how God works and reading so many books and understanding God that we aren't self-correcting anymore because we're just reading commentaries all the time. But if you focus on the word of God, and you start to stray, the word of God will bring you back. And you start to stray again, the word of God will bring you back. Or you're not going far enough in a certain aspect, like maybe you're not walking by faith, the word of God will push you out of your comfort zone. The word of God is self-correcting. And you need to see that when we talk through this missionary journey, because so many people have the temptation to get focused on something else. The word of God's boring. I don't understand it. It's not, it's, it's the thing that God chose to reveal himself to this world, okay? It's the plan A of God to bring salvation to planet Earth. And so that's why we focus on it. That's why we should focus on it. There's a protection in realizing this because it's self-correcting. Now, there's just to be thorough here, there's another way you can actually screw this up. One of my favorite sayings one of the old timers told me is like, every mile of road's got two miles of ditch. Right? So the idea there is like, you can go one way, you can go the other way. Like, you can screw this up both ways. There are people who claim to focus on the Word of God, but also screw it up. And by this I mean, they claim to focus on the Word of God, but they pridefully assume that they have the Word of God under control, handled, and understood. And so they no longer allow it to shape their life. So that thing I talked about earlier, about it being self-correcting, they want no part of it. They read their Bibles, they go to church, they memorize it. But when it actually convicts their hearts and says, your life has to change, they're like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm good on that. And that produces the most hypocritical, dead, unspiritual type of Christian on the planet. And, and the, the weird thing is they know the word of God so well, but the word of God stopped affecting their life a long time ago. And that's actually what's happening here in this passage. That's what these Jewish religious leaders are doing. They read the Bible all the time. They pray all the time. They hear Paul preach the gospel. And instead of allowing the word of God to change them, they pridefully assume, he's not talking to me. I already know what he, I already know what it said. I don't need to be told anymore. Like, he's not talking to me. I have it figured out. He's got it all wrong. So look at what their response is in verse 5. When an attempt was made, by both Gentiles and Jews, by the rulers to mistreat them and stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe in cities of Lyconia and to their surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. So these guys who are the religious service attending, Bible reading, scripture memorizing people in this society are so hardened to the word of God actually changing their heart that instead of change, they decide they're going to kill Paul and Barnabas. They decide they're going to stone them to death, right? It's not Washington-type stoned. It's throwing rocks at somebody until they die, right? That's what we're talking about here. Like, stoning and death is a means of execution where they get a big enough crowd around a person and throw big enough rocks at them until they are no longer alive. 
right? It's, it's a serious deal. And that's what they plan on doing. The persecution is now escalating, right? In earlier cities on this missionary journey, we weren't told of any persecution. We, we had the map up there earlier. They came all the way across that island. Like, we didn't see any persecution. Then somebody got saved uh, in, in the last city. I think it was it started with an S. I don't remember. On the island of Cyprus, right? And, and there was one guy that was like, oh, I'm a magician. I don't want this ruler to listen to you. So he was like mocking them and like trying to distract. But he wasn't actually persecuting them, right? So it kind of built, right? No persecution. But then we got a little bit of persecution. Then they go across the Mediterranean up north into Turkey. And there's more persecution, Right? But it just says when they got to Antioch, they just kicked him out of town. They're like, get out of here. We don't want you here. And they shook the dust off their feet and they left. Now people are like, okay, we're going to kill you. Like the persecution has like exponentially ramped up. Like we're going like from zero to a hundred pretty quick here. And maybe this will surprise you. But the point of trusting God through difficulty is to trust him more after you come out of that difficulty. Did you know that? Like, if God is leading you through a difficult moment right now, the point of going through that with God in this moment is so on the other side of it, you will trust him more, not less. It's very likely the things that he's leading you through right now that are requiring you to trust him are preparing you for other things in your future that will require you to trust him even more. Okay, so think of it this way. If you were a runner and you wanted to run a marathon, it's 26.2 miles. You wouldn't run 26.2 miles today. You'd run like one mile today, right? And then maybe a couple weeks from now, you'd run two miles. And then a little bit later, you'd run four miles. And then a bit later, five miles, and then 10 miles. And then sometime, like maybe you want to run a marathon a year from now, like you would build up to it. Faith works the exact same way. And, and sometimes we hate it, uh, but this is what happens. God has a plan for us to run further than maybe we think we can, right? God has bigger plans for our lives than maybe we even understand or we even want for ourselves. So he's building this faith in us by leading us through things that require us to trust in him and then following that up with something that requires you to trust in him more. And we're going like, oh. And sometimes I, I feel like I hear God saying so clearly, I want them to run further in their life than they even want to run. Like, I have bigger plans for their life than they even understand. And there's this part of our human sinful nature that doesn't want to have to trust God with anything. So if we go through a hard time where we have to trust God, we're like, whew, glad that's over. Don't want to trust him anymore. Right? We think it's like a driver's license test. Like, well, passed it. Now I can forget all that. Like, how far before I turn my blinker on? Who cares, right? My test's over, right? People approach Christianity that way. They think, oh, I trusted God for this thing. <sighs> Glad that's over. Now I don't have to trust him anymore. And that's a misunderstanding of what God is actually trying to do in your life. In order for you to get where God wants you to go, you're going to have to trust him more tomorrow than you did today. And I know sometimes we hate that. And we're like, I just trusted you with that thing yesterday, God. Can you just leave me alone? 
Can't you just let me do what I want to do? Can't you just let me control everything like I want to control everything and have it my way and I won't have to trust you and I will be happy? Here's the dirty little secret. You being in control won't lead to you being happy. You think it will. You think if I could just get my way and if I could just control things the way I want to do it and if things would just work out the way I want them to, then I will be happy. And it's false. You being in control won't make you happy. You walking in control instead of leading to faith, it does not lead to joy. It leads to something else. Don't tell me what makes me happy, Jared. I know what would make me happy. You don't. You're prideful, right? You think you know what would make you happy. You think you know what would lead to joy, and you don't. I'm not telling you this. Don't shoot the messenger. Don't be like, that pastor, he that. This is what the word of God is teaching us, right? That you thinking that you being in control will lead to your joy, it won't. This is what the word of God teaches. Jesus said it this way, you have to lose your life to find it. What the heck does that mean? That doesn't make any sense. Like, you will find what it means to live life like it was intended to be lived, not when you control it, but when you surrender that control and trust in God through the process. That's where you find true life, and that's where you find true joy. Not in getting what you want, not in controlling things the way you think they should be controlled. There's people in this room, I promise you, who God is calling you to trust in him and make hard decisions, and you're refusing to do it. And I'm telling you, that's killing you because it's robbing you of your joy. The thing that's robbing you of joy this morning is not that you're not getting what you want or you're not being allowed to control the situation like you want to. The thing that's robbing you of joy this morning is you're refusing to surrender to God. So Paul and Barnabas leave town so they don't get murdered, but their message doesn't change. It says in verse 7, they continue to preach the gospel, and there's going to be another miracle here, which actually the Bible usually doesn't slow down to tell us about these miracles, but this miracle is a doozy, and it's going to lead to some really crazy stuff. So let's look at the miracle and what it leads to. Verse 8, now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet, and he was crippled from birth and never walked. And he listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying, Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was a chief speaker. And the priests of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. So God heals this man. And this is not new to Paul and Barnabas, right? This has happened in, in different places. So it's kind of just how they roll. But the locals start to freak out and start proclaiming something in the Lyconian language, which Paul and Barnabas don't understand. And so they're like, if you could picture this thing, like they're listening, and then Paul's like, you should be healed. And the guy stands up, and then everyone's like, and they're all speaking this stuff, and they don't know what's happening. But all of a sudden, everybody's super friendly to them. Right? And, and word goes through the thing, and like they get to the priest, who apparently there's a priest of Zeus at the front gate, and he's like, oh my gosh, they're here. Now, this isn't in, in the actual scriptures, but it's interesting as I was studying through this historically, and you don't, you don't have to know this to understand the passage, but it's kind of cool background information. There was a Roman poet named Ovid that wrote uh, this series of books in AD 8. 
So we're talking maybe 50 years prior to this. And it was a very famous writing. And in that, he described a legend where Zeus and Hermes came down. So these Greek gods came down in this exact area, this exact region around Lystra. And, and they were visiting a thousand houses. And they'd go up to the house and they'd be like, let us in. And the people would be like, go away. And for a thousand houses, that happened. And then they got to this old couple who was actually handicapped. One of them was blind. One of them had something else wrong with them. And they said, let us in. They let them in. And then the old people put all their food they had on the table to be hospitable. And Zeus and Hermes like started doing miracles and making the food grow. And so Zeus and Hermes came out of that dinner and they said, we went to a thousand houses. Nobody invited us in. Nobody was nice to us. So they killed everybody else and blessed those two old people and built a temple uh, at the spot where their house was. So that was like the mindset of these people as they're listening to Paul and now they watch him do this thing. So the moral of the story of, of the legend uh, that would going around was Zeus and Hermes were here before. We weren't nice to them, so they killed everybody. So if Zeus and Hermes ever came back, you better be nice or they're going to kill you. Like, that was the message, right? So when Paul performs this miracle, there's somebody in the crowd that knows this legend that believes in Zeus and Hermes and that, you know, they're going to be mad if we're not nice enough. And they're like, oh, my gosh, Zeus is back. Hurry. Everybody be super nice so he doesn't kill us all. And that's what they start doing. They start freaking out. They start worshiping them. It's what I call the angry God theory, okay? Because it's not only in this passage but it's in almost every religion. It is in every religion on planet Earth. It's the idea that we start with God is angry and you need to do something about that that will make him not angry. And that, that pervades every religion on planet Earth, right? God's mad and we got we to gotta make it right. And, and we all, there's all sorts of ideas on how we make it right with God. With this angry God. Our angry God theory is that he's mad. He's going to punish us. So we got to follow the rules in order to make it right. And so the Mormons, they got their rules on how they're going to make it right with God. And then the five pillars of Islam is another set of rules on how they're going to make God not mad at them anymore. And then we got the Buddhists who are a little bit different, but it's like, you just don't understand. And so we got our eightfold path on how we're going to fix ourselves and understand better our relationship to God, that we are God. Surprise. Right? And then there's all these different rules. And the Watchtower Society is like, if you're not handing out tracts, you're going to hell, right? So we got all these different people that are basically doing the same thing. They're espousing the angry God theory. He's mad, or he's going to be mad if you don't follow the rules. And the message that Paul preaches is opposite of that completely. It's the idea that God is not angry, but loves us and sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. It's the idea that God is good and our job is not to fix our relationship with God, but our, God, our job is to understand and respond to his goodness. Thank you. Receive it. Like that's a completely different idea. It's not that we can somehow fix our relationship with God. It's that God has fixed his relationship with us. Have you received it? The gospel is completely different than the angry God theory and all of these other religions of the world. So this crowd sees the miracle and immediately the angry God theory comes into their mind. 
we got to fix this. We got to fix it, which again, like I said earlier, if you just get on the miracle track, you can easily misinterpret miracles, right? The miracle here isn't driving them to the word of God and they're getting off on their weird thing. They go to the priest of Zeus. He's doing this thing. And all of a sudden, apparently, Paul and Barnabas realize what's happening. Somebody tells them in their own language or something. And that's where we pick it up. Verse 14. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out to the crowd, crying out, men, why are you doing these things? So Paul and Barnabas realize what's happening. No, 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 no. Stop doing this. Stop doing this. Ripping your clothes is a sign of anguish in those days. No, don't do this. We are just like you. And what's going to follow is Paul's contrast between the angry God theory of religion and the gospel. And Paul's going to, like, while he's trying to get these people to stop, he's going to give us this super short sermon on, like, no, 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 don't do the angry God theory. That's not real. The gospel's real. So that's where we are. Look at it. Verse 15. We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without a witness. For he did good by giving you the rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to God them. Okay, so let's look at how Paul contrasts the gospel with the angry God mindset. First, look at this. The first thing Paul says about the gospel is that it's good news. Angry God mindset, angry God theory, religion is not good news. It's like, hey, I got good news for you. God's super mad. He's going to send you to hell unless you fix everything. That's not good news. You know why it's not good news? Have any of you tried to follow all the rules? How'd that work for you? Right? Give me a hand if you have done something in your life that while you were doing it, you knew you shouldn't be doing it. The rest of you that don't have your hands up, you're liars. Right? So we can't even do the things in our minds we know we should do let alone follow the perfect law of a God in order to make things right with him and get ourselves into heaven. Like the angry God mindset, even if it were true, which it's not, you can't follow it. Like you can't do enough to make any God, whether it's Zeus, even though he's not a real God, or any other God, happy enough to let you into heaven. Because not only could you not follow the rules from here on out, you can't pay for all the rules that you already broken in your past. Right? You'd get to heaven and God would be like, hey, from October 2021 on, you did good. But before that, let's talk. Right? You could be like, oh man, like you, there's no way. The angry God theory just, it's not good news. And that's what's great about the gospel. It is good news. The, the foundation is not that God's mad, but that God loves us. The gospel, in contrast to the angry God mindset, is actually good news. It's actual good news, not heaping a burden on you. They're like, you're the deciding one of whether or not you get to heaven or hell. Like, God is the deciding one. You just need to receive it or not. That is great news. Second thing Paul says. He says, turn from vain things 
to a living God. So on one side, we have what I'm calling the angry God theory. Paul calls it vain things. And on the other side, we have a living God. Okay? Now, if, you, if you're into writing in your Bible, which I would highly encourage you to do, write this because it might give you the idea of what Paul's saying here a little better. Right next to living or above it in your margin or something, write life-giving God. That's the idea. Turn from vain things, the religious mindset, the angry God mindset, to a living, life-giving God. The angry God mindset does not give life. The gospel gives life. Vain things are worthless. Vain things are worthless. You trying to work your way up to pleasing a God in heaven is a worthless endeavor. You'll never make it. You're not a good enough person. I know that's what you wanted to hear this morning. Like, hey, I'm going to go to church and have that guy tell me how much I suck. Well, you're welcome, right? You just can't make it. That actually should be very freeing for you. Because there's lots of people who think the answer to their problems is trying harder and doing better. And I'm just telling you, you can't try hard enough or do good enough to make it. The angry God theory is vanity. It's, it's worthless. It's literally worth nothing. It will not get you to where you think you want to go. Now, contrast that with the living God. And to illustrate the contrast, like I said, right, life-giving. You turn from a vain, worthless thing, the idea that you can save yourself, into this idea that will give life. The ideas of the life-giving gospel, of a life-giving God. The good news of the gospel is that a living, life-giving God has initiated your salvation. Now, now, how are you supposed to know that he did that? How are you supposed to know that there's a good, kind, life-giving God up in heaven that has earned your salvation already for you? How are you supposed to know that? He tells us. Look at the last part of what Paul says. He made the heavens and the earth and the sea and gave all men free will and didn't force you to trust in him, by the way. Yet he left you a witness of his goodness by giving you rains and fruitful seasons and satisfying your hearts with gladness. God left a witness, Paul says. That's the third thing he says. He says, the gospel is good news. The angry God theory is not good news. The angry God theory, the second thing he says, is vanity. Like, it, it leads to death. There's a life-giving God. And how do we know that? God left a witness. I've heard it said before that God kept himself close enough that you could find him if you wanted to, but far enough away that you could ignore him if you wanted to. He left himself a witness, which if you want to, you could choose to ignore. He's not going to force anyone into heaven. He sovereignly gave us the choice to live our lives as we desire. And if we don't want to pursue him, he's not going to force us. But if you're going to live a life apart from God, he is a life-giving God, and you're going to have to ignore some pretty incredible witnesses like creation and humanity and fruitful seasons and gladness of heart. I was driving here this morning thinking about this message and the sunrise was incredible. Right around seven o'clock, I was like, dang. Right? You should look at that and be like, there's a life-giving force somewhere. Yeah, his name's God and he created all this. Like people fall in love and they get this sense within them. There's a life-giving God around here. 
right? You have kids and you're like, I th so many people have talked to me like, hey, like I thought I was fine and then I had a kid and I was just like, I need to go to church, right? This is the witness that God has left on the earth. And if you're going to turn from the life-giving God to these vain, worthless things and ignore the good news, you're going to have to ignore all of that. You're going to be like, nope, science. All right. I mean, go down that road. You'll find science isn't quite as smart as maybe you thought it was if you were saying that. Just like last week, Paul did this thing where he reminded people of God's goodness. Now, last week was a little bit different context. When we were in Acts 13, he was talking to a Jewish group of people who would have known the Old Testament Bible, and they were in a synagogue setting, so they were in a religious gathering. And Paul was like, goodness of God in the Old Testament, goodness of God in slavery, goodness of God in the exodus from Egypt. And he just kept going down, goodness of God in King David, goodness of God. He just, all the goodness of God came from the Old Testament. Now his message is the same. He's still proclaiming the goodness of God, but now because these people have no idea from the Old Testament, he's using creation. He's like, who makes it rain in the spring when your crops need to grow? Who makes it warm in the summer when you're out there harvesting? Who brings the sun up every morning? Right? Who gives you gladness of heart and full times of harvest? Where does all that stuff come from? He's still proclaiming the goodness of God. It's just to a different group of people. And so the language is a little bit different, but the idea is the same. And how many rules do we have in this little sentence here? None, still. Still no rules. Still no rules. Because you know why? There's a lot of people in the Christian world who would call themselves Christian, but still hold to the angry God mindset. Ten Commandments. Go to church enough. Hey, I'm here, right? I think you should go to church. But you're not going to go to hell if you don't. That's probably not a great church growth strategy, right? Like some husband's like, let's buy a boat, right? Yeah, okay, man, don't do that. But like there is not an angry God mindset if you understand the scriptures. And people have turned the scriptures into an angry God mindset. And I'm just saying, you may claim the Bible, but you're just like the rest of those religious people, thinking they can work their way to God. There's not one single rule in the message that Paul just gave these people. If you're in the angry God mindset, think about that. That should change your direction. Now, look at what happens in verse 19. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. Something has happened with the time. I am teaching halfway through my notes, and I'm almost like here, and somebody has messed with the clock, and it's already 11 o'clock. I don't know who messed with the time, but we have zero time to finish this today. I know. I, yeah, go back. We're not going to push through, right? There's kids workers upstairs who have graciously volunteered their time that if I go 10 minutes over, my wife's going to make me sleep on the couch, right? <laughs> I'll finish here. Paul's going to walk into this next thing that is going to require greater faith than the last thing. We just read it. He gets stoned to death. People throw rocks at him until they think he's dead. Right? And, and we covered a lot today. We're going to finish it next week. 
right? There's this idea of vanity, thinking you can work your way to God. There's this idea that hard things are somehow like a driver's license test and we don't have to remember them. There's this idea that God's going to lead you into more difficult things to trust him more and enter into more joy in your future. And I don't know which one of those things God is putting on your heart this morning. I had three more points If it was up to me, I would have preached those other three points. I've been like, this is the most important thing you need to learn. But the great thing about our God is that his spirit's in charge, right? And so we do this thing at the end where we sing a song. We don't sing a song because we got nothing else to do with our lives. We sing a song so we can respond to the things God has put in our hearts from his word, right? The point of miracles is to drive us to the word. The point of worship should be to drive us to the word. The point of the songs that we sing are to remind us of the goodness of God as found in the word of God. So take this time. It's going to be another three minutes. You won't die, I promise, to reflect on what God has taught, to reflect on what his word just said, to respond to the things the Holy Spirit is doing in your heart. And we'll come back next week and we'll finish up and see where this leads us. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, I'm grateful for your word, how it instructs us and directs us and leads us and even interprets for us the things that are happening in our lives, Lord. And if, being real honest, Lord, if I would have had it my way, we would have finished our message this morning, but we didn't. And you know why. You know there's people in here who just needed that portion. There's people in here who just needed to be encouraged maybe to walk by faith in their moment of difficulty. There's people in here who just need to be encouraged to think about what their understanding of you is. Maybe they think of you as angry. Maybe they think of you as a mostly rule-oriented God. Maybe they're giving their lives to vain things right now. I don't know what's going on in our hearts right now, Lord, but you do, and I rest in that. And so as we sing this last song, Lord, as we proclaim more of your goodness, Lord, may your spirit do that work in our hearts. Father, we're grateful that you would speak to us at all. We're grateful that you would lead our hearts in any way, that you would reveal yourself to us as a gift, Lord. And we thank you for that gift this morning. Do your work in your people. We ask you in your name. Amen.